0: If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Psalms, and uh, we're uh, endeavoring to be able to at least capture the audio Sunday nights and put that up for the people who are working in other areas on Sunday nights that like to keep up with it. And um, the first week, uh, that didn't quite fall into place, and I need to reprise probably a little bit of what we said anyway. Uh, Did you get a handout as you came in? If you did not, I have some right here. Anyone need one? Raise your hand. Everybody got a handout. A couple people. So um, let me let me just review where we started off last time on Sunday night. Psalms. We talked about Psalms being the 19th book of your Bible, with 150 chapters, 150 psalms, 2,461 verses, and 43,743 words. We talked about how we get the name of the book, Psalms, from Psalm 145. Actually, in the superscription of that psalm, it talks about being a psalm of uh, David. Uh, Psalm 72, verse 20, refers to them as prayers. And that is also another title by which the Jews refer to this book, Book of Psalms. And then our word comes from the Greek word psalmoi in Colossians 3.16, which is songs. So we talked about the date that the psalms were written and how the oldest one was written by Moses. That's Psalm 90, written by Moses in 1490 B.C. The youngest psalm is Psalm 1, which was placed as a preface, I'm going to say, to the entire book of Psalms, about 444 B.C., and it is one of those orphan Psalms that doesn't necessarily specifically say in the front who it is by. I think Ezra would have been the one in 444 who kind of compiled everything in a, in a final format, uh, which then ends up being kind of more or less as the Jews are able to receive their Old Testament going into the time of Christ, who wrote the Psalms. We know of eight individuals so so there's maybe 40-ish psalms that are totally anonymous the rest either have someone's name connected to it or we can we can surmise Uh, so david for example 73 of the psalms are specifically said to be by him but um there are another four that we know also belong to him for various reasons, like in the New Testament when they're quoted, they, they're said to be by David and things like that. So he, so he comes up with like a good number 77. Uh, Asaph, and we talked about the Psalms that Asaph wrote 73 to 80 and Psalm 50. The Sons of Korah, Psalms 42 to 49, 84 and 85, and Psalm 87. And well, wow, how cool that was! That Korah, who rebelled against Moses and the earth swallowed him and his, and, you know, him and his uh, stuff up, that the children were not condemned because of the sins of the father. And actually, because Korah was also a Levite, like Moses was, so his children end up being part of the group that David assigned to work with the music at the temple, so at the time, David organizes things for the temple. So he had the tabernacle of David set up in Jerusalem, but he's getting everything ready for the temple that Solomon was going to build. And he organizes 24 courses or 24 divisions of priests so you're going to handle the worship aspect of what was going on there because he knew that, that you know, just like four goals of discipleship, you got to start with worship. And then those Levites have to get out the word. And then this is the thing as people come and assemble here that makes them part of the body, congregating together like that. And then, you know, we're supposed to be lights to the world. And so really you got all four goals of discipleship right there. So the sons of Korah, they're they're in one of those 24 sections of servants that David had set up. Jedithan, Psalms 39, 62, and apparently conducted Psalm 77. Solomon wrote or commissioned Psalms 72 and 127. Heman the Ezraite, Psalm 88. Ethan the Ezraite, Psalm 89, and Moses, Psalm 90. Why do we have the Psalms? In order to find that out, we um, looked at um, Psalm 16, verse 4. And actually, that was, act, that was actually a typo. Wasn't it supposed to be 1 Chronicles 16.4? Maybe it was supposed to be 1 Chronicles 16.4, which says three things, to record, to thank, and to praise. And that's what the Psalms are for. So the Gospels inform us of the fact that Jesus prayed. I'm going to say that the Psalms tell you the words in those prayers so if you would ever like to be a uh a a fly on the wall or a lizard on the rock as the case may be where jesus is up in the mountain and he and he's and he's praying a great while before day and you wonder wow i wonder what he prayed man if i could just be there and hear the things that jesus prayed well a lot of that is here in the book of psalms And we'll see some of that as we go through it. But we started with Psalm 1, which talks about two men, the godly man and the ungodly man. So the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah. Um, the, 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 uh, The first verse starts off with the word blessed. So it is a beatitude. We talked about how there are, you know, like... Eight, nine Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and then you got about another dozen that are scattered throughout the Bible, but several in the Psalms, and Psalm 1 is one of those, and so he's the happy man because blessed means happy. Uh he wants to show his people to how to be as happy as he is. That's why I wrote Psalm 1. So, to, in order to accomplish that, in order to get that blessedness. There is certain work needed on the Messiah's part, and he is the godly man. So whenever you see the psalmist, you say, Alan, you know, how is it that, uh, how is it that, you know, you're saying that a lot of the psalms are Jesus' words even as he prayed? So how can that be whenever so many times I see the psalmist declaring his own faults, his own failures, his own sinfulness? So how can, that, how can that be? Well, whenever you see that, and the speaker is Jesus, it is because he is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. He is prophet, priest, and king, but he's our high priest And as our high priest, he is carrying our sins before the Heavenly Father. And as our advocate before the throne, he is charging himself with the guilt of our sins. And that's why Paul is able to say in in Corinthians that Christ was made sin for us. And because of his sinlessness... Even while he did that, well, he's able to atone for our sins. So that's why in the book of Psalms, there are two men. Psalm 1, there are all five sacrifices. So in the book of Leviticus, there are five sacrifices listed. And all five of those are found in the Psalms. Leviticus 2, the meat offering. That's Psalm 16. Leviticus 4, the sin offering that's psalm 22 leviticus 1 the burnt offering that's psalm 40 leviticus 5 the trespass offering that's psalm 69 leviticus 3 the peace offering psalms 85 116 118 so you have two men you have five sacrifices and you got nine psalms about jesus Nine psalms about Jesus, so we call these messianic psalms, psalms about the Messiah. We listed those for you. Psalms 2, 22, 23, 29, 45, 69, 80, 110, and 118. So, okay, we were were talking about certain things when we started last time. How are these psalms written? Well about 50% of the psalms are inscripturated to us as poetry. And so this is important in understanding the sense of what God is communicating through the book of psalms because the Holy Spirit inspired the book of psalms through a human context, And that human context is this. How they were written is this. It's it's rhythm, not rhyme. Rhythm, not rhyme. In other words, our poetry, English poetry, we tend to rhyme words at the end of the line. That's not the way the Hebrews did it. Uh, Bible poetry was written to be accompanied with music on the lyre and the lyre was uh, not quite our guitar it it, it was but it was an instrument that you would pluck or strum kind of like a handheld um, uh, I don't know a handheld what is what is that what is that big stringy thing that that harpsichord what harp yeah well it's like a handheld harp so that, so, so that means since it's rhythm, it's not rhyme, the music is lyrical and it is rhythmic. W. Graham Scroggy, who is one of the successors to Charles Spurgeon at uh, Brooklyn, uh, at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Scroggie says this The Psalter has been called the hymn book of the Hebrews, but there's a difference between hymns and these psalms. The word psalm. That Hebrew word mizmoy that we talked about means a composition set to music. And it speaks of the music rather than the psalm, but for, except for the lyre. But for the lyre, if it, I mean, if it hadn't been for that in particular instrument, we might never have had lyrics. And but for the art of weeping the strings, which we call psalming. We might never have had in our hands the poetic products we call psalmoy, or the psalms. In other words, the difference between a psalm and a hymn as to origin is that in the case of the psalm, the words were stirred by the music. David took out his lyre, he started playing music, and you know, just words came to that. In the case of our hymns, the music is stirred by the words. So whether it's, you know, Fanny Crosby or, uh, I don't know, any of the other great hymn writers, they kind of started with words and then they added music on top of it. So so you better recognize the importance of praise in the aspect of your worship. You know what? We put everything else in our ears. And I, you know, and okay, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not a legalist. I'm not dogging on anything. I'm just saying that, you know, every once in a while, shouldn't you maybe put some praise? And I, and I, and I you know, and I think we try and take our Sunday worship set and put it up on Spotify to to at least make that part easy for you. Uh, if you know, if you happen to get on Spotify, we well, can just kind of pull that up, and at least you get some worship in your head. You know, in, instead of, you know, the guy who, you know, loses his dog, loses his wife, and loses his truck, and then you play the country record backwards, and he gets them all back. And, I, you know, I don't know. It's, you know, and all sorts of other stuff. Um, you know, we, we put all all sorts of, you know, we listen to all sorts of other stuff. Um, I think we ought to pay attention to maybe at least you know starting off our day sometimes if we could with with an aspect of worship so bible poets started strumming their guitar and then god gave them words once they would get down a melody and once they would kind of get things down and so that means that rhyming is not the basis of their poetry rhythm is now if that being the case how do we learn from the psalms how are we going to learn from the psalms if bible poetry is not based on meter and on rhyme like ours is, how is that rhythm that drives it expressed? First, letter A, by parallelism. Turn to Psalm 24. Be turning to Psalm 24 in your Bible. So I'm going to take about 10 more minutes on introductory stuff like this, and then we're going to get back to where we left off at at. I don't you remember now if we finish Psalm One completely, but we'll, we'll we'll start reviewing that there and get into Psalm Two tonight, Lord Willing. So, but I want to do about half the time on kind of introductory stuff and half the time, you know, getting into actually looking at the Psalms. So, um, our English poetry is traditionally centered on assonance or, or rhyming at the end of a sentence or the end of a thought. And there are some examples of that in Hebrew as well. But since God knew that we would not be reading Hebrew as our biblical authority then he caused Hebrew poetry to center on rhythm as expressed in several different forms of parallel thought, parallel thinking. So instead of ideas rhyming at the end of a line, two lines, the thoughts are shown to be parallel ideas. Now there are three major types of Hebrew parallelism in your English Bible. The Bible says, and um, you know, the Bible tells us how God teaches, and educators will tell you this is the way we learn. And if I could boil it down to the three simplest basic common denominators, we learn by comparison, by contrast, and by repetition. I think so. I think almost any other rubric of, um, you, you know, putting together curriculum and teaching somebody at whatever different age they're at, you know, probably fits into those three things. You're either utilizing comparison contrast and you're doing it repetitively. Psalm 24, look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Okay, this is number one. This is synonymous parallelism. Right? Verse one, the fullness of the earth is comprised of those dwelling on the earth. So line 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Line 2 defines that, the world and they that dwell therein. It's it's a synonymous thought. Verse 2, the specific seas that he is talking about are related doctrinally by cross-referencing to the floods that are described in other Bible passages. Verse 3, God's holy place. Is the place of his hill okay? So, in parallelism, number one, there's synonymous we are God is teaching you by comparison. Now, turn to Psalm one, back to Psalm one. So, God teaches by comparison, and, and God teaches as we see so in Psalm 24 by repetition. So synonymous parallelism is where the second line repeats the idea, the first line, while using different terms. So it uses synonyms. Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, <coughs> but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Okay, that's number two, antithetic. Antithetic parallelism. Did, did, you, did you see the word But? which starts the second line. So this is simply another way of saying that God teaches you through contrast. Because the second line contrasts with the first. So the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked are contrasted here in this verse. Okay, since we're in Psalm 1, look at verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Okay, so you have synonymous parallelism and God's teaching by comparison. You have antithetic parallelism, God's teaching by contrast. And now you have synthetic, a synthesis synthetic parallelism because god's god's teaching you comparison contrast and now repetition because the second line the thought explains or adds to the idea in the first line now turn to psalm 19 so in synthetic parallelism god is kind of extending his collapsible telescope so that you can zoom in on his words. The blessed man does not do these three things. And he replaces them with two things. Or three if you separate day and night. Okay, so he, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful. He replaces that with his delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate. Meditates day, meditates night. Psalm nineteen. Did I say turn to Psalm nineteen? Psalm nineteen, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I mean, like, wow, his his law is parallel with his testimony. And the telescope is extended on both of those things as to what they do. The same thing with his statutes or commandment as to what they produce. And, and look at how the fear of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord are laid side by side and then extended as to their attributes. So there's uh, synonymous and there's antithetic and there's synthetic and then there, and then there are variations on those themes. There are variations on those three forms just like there are variations on the three major names for God Elohim Jehovah and Adonai God Lord in like all capital letters or capital L and small small caps ORD and then Adonai which is Lord in lower case um so there, so there are other forms of parallelism that um, I'm not going to bore you with. Emblematic, introversion, interactive, responsory, you know, alternate, you know, may, and maybe I'll point some of those out when we get there. So uh, parallelism is one way that we learn. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there with that. And I would uh, like us to next go ahead and get... Let's review what we looked at in Psalm 1. And then let's see if we can dig into Psalm 2. So go go to Psalm chapter 1. Last time we mentioned to you how the book of Job is the unhappy man. And Psalms is the singing man. And Proverbs is the wise man. And Ecclesiastes is the worldly man. And the Song of Solomon is the heavenly man. And our first point for study was that the godly human has a heavenly path because he is separated from the world. Okay, look at verse 1, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Okay, three things. Number one, the godly man or woman... Doesn't listen to the ungodly. <laughs> you know, this is so ironic because what do we do every day of our lives? You know, if we tend to, if you drive for a living, you're out in your car, you're dry, you, you, know, you drive a truck or whatever, what, what do you do? You turn on the radio and you listen to talk radio. I bet you do. So You know, millions of people do and listen to talk radio. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, I listen to my share of talk radio, too. I'm mostly, I just kind of, you know, want to keep up. So, so I'll say this, I listen to talk radio just like, just like I listen to rap and hip hop and heavy metal, because I want to keep up with what's going on in, in culture. And it's not that, you know, some of them don't have good ideas or good analysis. It's just that I don't care. Is that okay? I don't, you know, I don't care. The, you know, to me, the best ones are the ones that are good entertainers. And, you know, I like comedy, and, uh, you know, they can make a funny comment now and then or have those funny uh, commercials and, um, th- you know, and I, th- I, th- you know, I think that's hilarious. But so many so many, just so many, I won't say, oh, so many of us or so many of them, just so many, um, listen to the ungodly all the time. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, but I don't think they're born again. I'm just saying. I mean, maybe one or two, maybe some of them, are, maybe you know someone who is, uh, and that's good. But mostly, regardless of, you know, what we think about it, mostly what we hear when we tune into, into those shows is uh, kind of the, uh, the talk of those who are not born again and, you know, and they're going in a certain direction with things and then it influences how we think. And um, I'm, you know, I'm going to say just more or less drives out the mind of Christ unless you're going to start first with your Bible and use your Bible to define what they're saying. But so the godly man or woman doesn't listen to the ungodly, listens to critique it, criticize it. Number two, does not linger with the sinful. And in the final analysis, number three, does not laugh with the scornful, which would be those who are running down the faith in this context. Talking about those who are running down the faith. So I want you to notice here in this first verse how the ungodly has his counsel and the sinner has his way and the scorner has his seat. Uh, Keep your your finger here, but go to the New Testament. Get uh, Colossians 2, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 5. Ephesians 2 and 5 and Colossians 2. So the scorner has his seat, and the seat is what what we call in English, in English education, we call it the chair. So a university has a chair of different disciplines and different studies. So you have a chair of the English language department. You have a chair of mathematics. You have a chair of science or a chair of religion. Jesus said the scribes of his day sit in Moses' seat. They teach from the chair of Mosaic studies, according to Matthew 23, verse 2. And you know, Jesus was so temperate and so balanced because he was constantly in conflict, in conflict with these people. He was constantly in conflict with the fundamentalists of his day, the Pharisees and and the scribes. He was constantly in conflict with them, but he told his disciples, he said, look, they sit in Moses' seat, so so do what they say, just don't do like they do. Now, unfortunately, our entire educational system from kindergarten to post-doctorate is full of seated scorners. And unless it's specifically a Christian university, and even many of those, you know, it doesn't matter, don't count, uh, but certainly 95% of those who hold a chair of X different discipline in our secular society... They're probably scorners about the Bible and, you know, scorners about Christianity and scorners about God and, uh, you know, even some Bible colleges are not free of them. And this is a progression here in, in Psalm 1, a progression of a digression of wickedness because first you're walking and then you stop and you're standing and finally you sit there with them and you're scorning. The blessed person is blessed specifically because he or she avoids the perils and the pitfalls along the path of those who do not know the Lord. So the walk to happiness is found in this triplet right here in Psalm 1. What is the inspirational application for us as New Testament saints? Okay, Colossians chapter 2, will you look at verse 6 with me? As a matter of fact, who's got that, that will, that will read in their outside um, recess, um, you know, outside on, the, outside on the, you know, recess voice, uh, Colossians 2.6. Brian, read that. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Aha, your walk today should be in Christ, Colossians 2.6. That's what we walk in. Okay, Ephesians 5, verses 10 and 11. Anybody else want to use their playground voice? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Okay, wait, let's see. Is that Ephesians 5? Oh, that's 6. Do I want 5 or 6? Oh, I'm sorry. Another one of my typos. <laughs> Finally, my yeah, that's it. <laughs> be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the earth. That's it. Ephesians six, verses ten and 11. Your standing today should be in the power of his might. So you walk in Christ. When you stop and stand, which is all you have to do to win is stand, you're standing in the power of His might. Okay, third, third verse, Ephesians 2.6. Anybody with the playground voice? Ephesians chapter 2. Well, there, there you go. Your seat today is with Jesus in heavenly places. You, you are the chair of heavenly places. You, uh, you sit, your seat is with Jesus in heavenly places. And it is from there that you are authoritatively able to speak about what, what ought to be going on in somebody's life and what's going to fix them, and what's going to heal them, and what's going to make it better. So what that means is a practical application of Psalm 1 to, to us, and this is the second point for study, is that the godly human has pleasure simply because he is satisfied with God's word. I'm pleased because I'm satisfied with God's word. I'm satisfied with what it says. I'm satisfied with what it teaches me. And you know, when things don't go my way, I'm satisfied with the way the Word of God defines the situation that's not going right and gives me the faith, like we talked about this morning, I've got the faith to find the hope and the love in this situation. So if you do, verse 2, Of Psalm 1 you will not fall into doing verse 1 because first the word of God is what captures his full attention look at verse 2 but his delight is in the law of the Lord blessed is he he is happy because his delight is in the law of the Lord so he has a different counselor than the ungodly person He finds different company than the sinful person. He has a different cause than the scornful person because he has not left his first love for the Word of God. Uh, Look at, uh, go to Job chapter 23 and Psalm 119. Keeping your finger here in uh, Psalm 1. Job 23, Psalm 119. What does it really mean to delight in the law of the Lord, I wonder? Well, does anybody have Job 23, verse 12? Huh, I think that's what it means to delight in the law of the Lord. You're like Job. You esteem the words of God's mouth more than your necessary food. Do you know that's how Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus defeated the devil? Because whenever he had been 40 days in the wilderness fasting, and he was a-hungered, and then the devil came to him, tempting him, saying, Look, Jesus, that stone, turn it into a loaf of bread. I mean, you have a need. You think you're going to die if you don't get that need met. And Jesus said, You know what? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Psalm 119. Does anybody have Psalm 119, verse 162? Psalm 119, verse 162. I word, as one that great ah, that's what it means to delight in the law of the Lord. It means you're searching the scriptures because you know that if you seek, you'll find. I mean if you ask, it'll it'll get an answer. If you knock, it's gonna be open. If you take the word of God and you seek, you will eventually find, as long as you keep seeking. And when you find, you find great spoil because it's the answer. It's you know it's the thing that you needed. It centers you. It gets you grounded and stabilized in, in a foundation of faith. So first, the word of God is what captures his full attention. Second, second, the word of God is what claims, so it captures his full affection, it claims his full attention. Verse 2, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, you know, I've got to press pause right there, parenthetically, because... The word meditation has so been misdefined, and therefore it's misdefined by the world. And unfortunately, because of that, it's misused in Christian circles. Because we uh, have been influenced since the 1960s by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. You remember the Beatles? Beatles were kind of a big deal at least here in America. Beatles were a big deal. It was, they were the fab four. And it was a fad, and it was, you know, everybody, every kid in America was into it. And they start off wearing these Edwardian suits and ties and singing love songs. And then, and then all of a sudden, uh, all, of a, all of a sudden, they are, um, you know, s- smoking hashish and taking trips to India. You know, I just kind of think that one of the punishments for the country that gave us the King James Bible, whenever they turned away from that, whenever they turned away from the Bible, I kind of think they ended up with their young people falling for the, for the most insane stuff. I mean, Hinduism is, is insane stuff. I mean, comparative religions, if you've ever studied it, it's just, it is crazy stuff but because of their contact with him and bringing him and what he taught back here to America, then yoga coming from the yogi and the the Hindu idea of meditation has come down into the American consciousness and therefore the ironic thing is that mindfulness means emptying your mind. And it means, um, you know, I, I think this is a trap for all unwary warriors of the Lord. It means you consciously disengage your mind from reality or even from your own personality. Well, that's not... That's not Bible meditation. So, so i gotta, you know, I got to make sure you understand the biblical definition of this word because meditation in the Bible means to deliberately and consciously engage your mind with the truth that is spoken in God's word. So meditation is where you come into God's presence with an open Bible. And then you ask questions as you look through it. Let me suggest some to you. Questions like, is there any sin in this passage for me to avoid? Is there any promise in this paragraph that I can claim? Is there any truth in this chapter that I've never seen? And while I am at it, let me tell you how to do Christian journaling. Cuz I know some, you know, a lot of people enjoy do doing journaling, but the only type of journaling they think about doing is journaling kind of as a stream of consciousness, a record of the stream of consciousness of their own thoughts. And I suppose that can have some cathartic, even calming effect at the moment you're doing it and then you look back and open those notebooks three years later and it's like, what was I thinking? Okay, that's, you know, a lot of people enjoy that type of journaling, but uh, if you want to do Christian journaling, Christian journaling, biblical journaling means that you read until you find yourself in the Psalms, for example, and you find, you find in a passage, in a chapter of a book, you find exactly what you're going through. You find exactly how you're feeling. And then you get your journal and you start noting the answer to some of those questions that we suggested that you ask. And you start making an exact record of kind of what God is saying. where, where is, If you can find yourself in the Psalms keep reading and see where God takes you journal that why don't you and you know and if you can't verbalize it in your journal then you didn't learn anything I don't know I don't know what else to say I mean if you can't put it down well what did you learn then because the goal of any comfort God gives you Just like 1 Corinthians 3 talks about, the goal of any comfort God gives you is so you can comfort someone else with it. Well, if you can't put it down and put it into words, how are you going to comfort anybody else? You didn't learn anything. So we ought to get correct, I think, come correct about biblical journaling. This is our third point for study. The godly human has prosperity. According to this psalm, because he is situated by the waters. Okay. Look at verse three, verse three. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So in, in terms of Bible typology, you need to take note. If you're taking any notes, you ought to take note about this. So in terms of Bible types, Water for washing and water for cleansing is a Bible picture of the Word of God. Ephesians five twenty seven talks about Jesus cleanses us with the washing of water by the Word. Water for drinking is a type, a Bible type or a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Meditation on the Word of God Okay, so let me draw it down for you. Meditation on the Word of God is what releases the river of the Spirit of God. Now you know this is true if you'll take the time to do it, if you'll invest the effort in doing it. I admit, I admit, it's just like the Bible says. You've got to study to show yourself approved unto God and that's work. I mean, that takes some effort. That means you set aside the time. That means you get down with Coffee is always a good idea because caffeine, you know, always helps you think a little, a little bit better on your feet. But you get down with your coffee cup and, and your notebook and your Bible and you run some references and you take the time to really meditate and then get some things down. And as you meditate on the Word of God, it releases the Spirit of God both into your heart and life, and this is part of what gives you the will to do that we talked about this morning. I didn't have time to get into it this morning, so you're getting a bonus session tonight. So when, when Paul says in Philippians that you've got to work out your own salvation, the salvation God has worked in you, you've got to work it out, and you're going to be able to do that through this process because as you meditate in the word of god it turns the light on and the holy spirit is going to work in you both to will and to do of god's good pleasure so when you're not motivated to do the right thing well that's what gets you motivated you got to put god you have to show god he's first and then God will circle back around to you. I mean, here are the disciples and they're, on the, they're in a storm on the lake and Jesus had been praying for him on the mountain, but now he's going to the other side and so he starts walking by. And you know what it says? It says he was walking as if he wouldn't even stopped because he wouldn't have unless they hailed him down and said, hey... you know we're kind of we're kind of having a hard time here so the word of god and the spirit of god do three things for you according to verse three they cleanse you and quench your thirst they are able to bear fruit in the branch like john 15 talks about now discipleship is how we make that fruit remain but they will also cause whatever the believer does to prosper. If not in this life, then in the next, whenever it's responded to from a position of faith. There are seven things I'll say that you find accompanying the blessed person in the Old Testament. Good company. Okay, so not hanging out with the ungodly. Good books. In this case, the psalmist had... Genesis through the book of Ruth, probably. Uh, Good thoughts, that's verse 2. Good fruit, verse 3. Good success, verse 3. Good health and a good position, verse 3. So the psalmist lists for us seven things right here which mark the man or woman who will stay situated by that river. And uh, I think probably I'll list these for you and then uh, bid you good day because our time will be about up. So what are those seven things? First, his prominence, verse 3, and he shall be like a tree. His prominence. Second, his permanence, verse 3, and he shall be like a tree planted. Matthew fifteen thirteen. but Jesus answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. So if you're like a tree planted, okay, that's permanence. Prominence, permanence. Your permanence is because God has planted you. Third, your position, verse 3, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So you have a never failing source of life. Therefore, prominence, permanence, position, you also have productivity, verse 3, that bringeth forth his fruit. Then you have propriety, verse 3, because this isn't just bringing forth your fruit. It's bringing forth your fruit in your season. The right fruit in the right season for the right thing. To nourish the right people. Second Timothy 2, verse 4, Paul said, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Okay, what, what's instant coffee? Man, it is ready as soon as you get it in contact with hot water. All you need is water, and it's ready. It's ready to go. What is instant oatmeal? I don't like instant oatmeal. I like the old-fashioned oatmeal. Because, you know, I don't know if I'm part horse or what, but I kind of like to chew. Uh, but instant oatmeal is just, I mean, it's ready as soon as it comes in contact with water, hot water. It is ready for you. Be instant in season, out of season, that word instant is also translated be at hand, to stand, to be present. So we've got to be ready for any season. But the point of verse 3 is we bring forth the fruit needed for that particular season. And we do it whether, whether it was seasonal or not because we were ready. So you've got his prominence, permanence, position, productivity, propriety, and then number six, his perpetuity. Verse three, his leaf also shall not wither. So, so he won't be an annual, he'll be a perpetual. I don't, what, what are the words they use for plants? Perennial. Perennial. Okay, well, I guess I could have used that P word instead. Could I? Is a perennial something that keeps growing every season and an annual just grows once and you dig it up or throw it out or it doesn't come back or whatever? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But we do have experts in the house, I think. So I guess I, guess I could say he, his, his perenniality, his leaf also shall not wither. He's not affected by the wind or the weather because a Christian's like an evergreen. Wait, we are the true Christmas tree. I know we've not even had Halloween yet, but the the stuff's already out. We are the true Christmas tree. And then finally, his prosperity. Verse 3 And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So I want you to turn to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, and uh, I'll read this passage to close because we're just almost out of time. Jeremiah gives us additional details. So, this is the cross reference that you should add into Psalm 1, verse 3. Jeremiah 17, verse 7 Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Okay, additional details. His roots spread out, searching the river for nutrients. He will be removed before the heat comes on. Well, that's the rapture. We we won't see the heat. We won't see when the heat cometh. We won't be here for the tribulation. Uh, when he does go through a year of drought, he doesn't have to worry because he prayed. Just like Elijah prayed after three and a half years, and it rained, James 5.18. So he shall not be careful in the year of drought. Well, all we got to do is pray. Uh, and having done that, Until the day that he dies, he will yield the fruit of the Spirit. Neither shall he cease from yielding fruit. So this is a crazy good psalm, and uh, we're not finished with it yet, so Lord willing, um, next time we get together, we'll give you a little bit more introduction on psalms, and we'll work again at getting through Psalm 1 and getting into Psalm 2, and uh, then just kind of take it up from there. So my time is up. I thank you for yours.